God, your word in the person of Jesus Christ creator of all things and recreator of our hearts so that we are new creations fashioned for good works to your glory, Jesus. Thank you for your work of creation and recreation. It's you alone by the power of the word of God speaking life from death speaking light from darkness. You are creator. You are recreator. We worship you this morning. Jesus, you're worthy of all we've ascribed to you. Be enthroned on the praises of your people. now by your spirit at work in us. Continue to move. Help us to exalt over your word. Help us to do what it says. We pray now for Pastor Blake. Give him a boldness, a courage, a wisdom, a clarity to proclaim your word, your truth. It is your word that brings life. Thank you for your word. And thank you for receiving our worship this morning. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen. You can be seated as we continue in worship. Well, good morning, Crosspoint. I'll give you guys another run at that one. Uh, good morning, Crosspoint. Oh, no, I feel like you like me. All right. If you would please pray with me as we get started, I would greatly appreciate it. 
Jesus, there is no reason for us to gather here except to glorify and honor you as your people. And we ask that as we dive into your word, that that is exactly what takes place, that you would glorify yourself, that you'd use a broken messenger to declare the perfections of who you are and how you want us to run after you. We need you. We long for you to be working because that is the only way anything of worth or value is accomplished is if you do the work. So, God, that is what we ask. And we trust you to do a work. And we look forward to how you will shape us and how you will meet with us as we dive into your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we have been in this series for the last few weeks, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Sermon on the Mount, Mountain Hill, whatever you want to call it. Basically, elevated surface, Jesus up on top, sea of people proclaiming the glories and the wonders of God. And we start with the Beatitudes, the beginning of this sermon, and the blessed are, God blesses those who are. We've talked so far about uh, the poor in spirit, those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. And we've talked about those who mourn and and context specifically about those mourning over their sin. We've talked about God blessing uh, those who are meek, those who walk in the strength of that humility and that gentleness. And now this week, we are in chapter 5 of Matthew. We're going to be in verse 6. But we're also going to be in another place, so before we even dive in, if you want to go ahead and find Matthew chapter 5, and maybe flip yourself over to Proverbs chapter 2, stick a bulletin, stick something there, we're going to be going uh, to those two texts primarily today, Matthew chapter 5 and Proverbs 2. <coughs> Excuse me. So Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 6, it says this. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. Now, uh, the NLT will say justice. If you have another version, it might have another word, probably righteousness. And that word, uh, so if you look, there's a first point, righteousness is essential to your spiritual existence. Now, you might wonder why I'm saying righteousness when the text says justice, and here's why. The word that's actually here in the original text, the original language of the New Testament, is a word that means for us to conform our will, our thoughts, our desires, our actions, basically the entirety of us, that we would conform ourselves to the will of the divine, to the will of God. So does justice fit that? Yes, it does. But it's it's kind of a a more narrow branch of that definition, whereas righteousness, I would suggest to you, kind of more overarchingly covers that, that concept, that we are to conform ourselves to the desires, to the will of God. Because righteousness, that English word, simple definition, when something is righteous, that means it is right in the eyes of God. God sees it and says, this is good, this is right. So for us to have a righteous life, is basically for us to live life in such a way that when God looks at what you say, at what you do, at the motives of your heart, that God looks at this and says, yes, this is right, this is good in my eyes. We as humanity, as people, we often go about things based on what is right in our own eyes. 
You see that time and time and time and time again throughout the Bible. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Especially in the book of Judges, you see that. And nothing's changed. How often do we live our lives based on what I think is good and what I think is right, rather than getting on our knees and praying, God, where do you want me to go? Where are you taking my family? God, where is the next step? Is this really what is in line with you? How many times am I wrestling with a problem, with a dilemma? Is it, God, what would most honor you? What decision can I make that will most honor you? As opposed to, what will get me out of the problem? What's the quickest way home? To live a righteous life. Now, text talks about hunger and thirst. Those who hunger and thirst for this righteousness. Have you ever been hungry? I'm sure you have. Ever seen someone who's been hungry? If you've had a teenage son, you've definitely seen someone who's been hungry. But have you ever been really hungry? Now, I'm not talking about you haven't eaten since breakfast and it's now dinner time. Though I get that makes some of us cranky. I'm not talking about, man, it's been all day and I haven't eaten. I'm talking about, have you been so hungry? Imagine, picture in your mind, what is a food that you cannot stand? I'll fill in the blank for me and probably some of you, Brussels sprouts, right? How hungry do you have to be to eat them? Some of you, you're weird and you'll eat them right away. Me, for me to eat them, I would have to be very, very hungry before I'd even consider eating them. What is hunger and what is thirst? Hunger and thirst is your body's way of telling you that there is something missing from your body, from your being, that is essential for your existence. When your body's saying, hey, I'm hungry, it's saying, you need to put food in here. You need to put something in because I am depleted and I need more. Whatever this is, this food, this liquid, this water, I need more of it. It's your body telling you something vital for your life is missing. And needs to be replenished. And when we're talking spiritually, we're talking about righteousness. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When is the last time you can honestly say in your life, you sat down and thought, I am starving for more of you, God. I want so much more. There is a longing in my spirit. There's a longing in my soul to be in line with you. There's some seasons of our life where, as Christians, some seasons of our life where that's very bold and in front of our face. And God, I want nothing more in this world than to be in line with you. And there's seasons of our our life where we're wandering and rebelling. And what season are you in? Are you in a place right now where you are longing, God, I want my life to be marked by righteousness. I long for my life to be seen in your eyes as good as right. When I get to the end of my days, I don't want God to welcome me in by the skin of my teeth. I want God to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You lived a life that was righteous in my sight. But when we go through our life, making our decisions, is that what's behind them? God, I want to honor you. I want you to smile when you look down upon me. I want to bless and encourage you by living a righteous life. Righteousness is essential 
to your spiritual existence? Do we long for it, hunger for it, as though it is? Or is it something that we think is, well, that's for when it's convenient. That's for when I have time for it. Or is there a longing there? Now, that's all good and well to say, right? Like, okay, I get it. I'm supposed to long for this. But what do I do? How do I get righteous? Do I just like, righteousness? No, that's not how that works. So how do we grow in righteousness? Well, thankfully, God doesn't leave us in the dark. We're going to come back here. So if you want to stick a notepad or paper or bulletin or something here, uh, feel free. But now jump over to Proverbs. Excuse me, Proverbs chapter 2. Because God doesn't leave us in the dark on this question. He is good and faithful and gives us the answers to anything necessary, all things for life and godliness. So it says in Proverbs chapter chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says, My child, listen to what I say. Treasure my commands. Tune your ears to to wisdom and concentrate on understanding. Cry out for insight and ask for understanding. Search for them as you would for silver and seek like hidden treasures. Now, wait a second, but you were talking about righteousness, and now you're talking about wisdom and understanding. And w- so I promise that if, if you want to skip ahead and read ahead, feel free to, you can check out verse 9, but I promise all this leads to righteousness. This is a, a progression, and if you ever look at the original text, verse 1 through 11 of chapter 2 is one continuously long, really long sentence. It's all one train of thought. So this, all of this we're talking about with wisdom leads to righteousness. So this next point, if you haven't written it down, living righteously requires an active pursuit of God's wisdom and understanding. So where's that coming from? Take a look at verse 1, the beginning. Listen to what I say. Now, English has a couple of words for this, right? We could say, now hear me. But that would have been a wrong word choice. Some of your Bibles might use that, and it's not, I guess it's not wrong, but there's a better one, and the better one is to listen, and here's why. The original word for this, when it says, to listen to my words, it has this idea of like, snatch them, grab them. There's something active involved. Hearing is passive. You can hear your parents, but if you listen to them, that means you're actually doing something about it. There's something active with listening. And so he says, hey, listen, there's an active piece to this. It's not this passive thing. Hey, listen, actively snatch these up. Take hold of them. And treasure my commands to treasure them, to store them up. What are the things that you treasure? Some of us hold on to things for various reasons. You might hold on to a a pocket watch from a grandpa. You might hold on to flower petals from a bouquet from your prom. You could hold on to a thousand things for various sentimental reasons. And none of that's wrong. Although if your garages get a little too full, you may want to winnow it down a bit. But we hold on to a lot of things. We treasure a lot of things. But do we treasure wisdom? Do we seek it out? And verse 4 talks about seeking it out like silver, like it's this buried treasure. And the word there for seeking and searching, it has this connotation like you're digging up the dirt, you're turning over the rocks, you're searching, scouring for it. A lot of times our idea of looking for wisdom and looking for counsel ends at asking someone for advice. Now, is it wrong to ask someone for advice? By no means. Scripture is abundantly clear that where... Where counselors are few, plans will fail. Like you need to seek out counsel and seek out wisdom. 
But if your source stops at people, there is a problem. Diving into God's word, diving into prayer, seeking wisdom at its source, at God himself, searching for it. See, if we hunger and thirst for righteousness and you desire that kind of life, starts with this. It starts with, God, I want to know what is wise. I want to understand your ways to seek out God's wisdom and God's understanding. In verse, excuse me, verse 3, crying out for insight and ask for understanding. That idea of crying out, asking. It's not just a simple thing of, hey, I've got a problem. Can you give me some advice? It's the idea that you are before your creator and you aren't praying in your head. Not that that's wrong. You aren't even talking aloud. You're like, God, help me! You're lifting up your voice. You're crying out loud. Does that mark our prayers? And there's nothing wrong with praying silently. There's nothing wrong with praying with casual speech. But when's the last time you cried out before God? And just let your heart pour out. Let everything, God, help! And just crying with your full voice. So that your voice becomes weary with calling out to him. David writes in one of his psalms, my voice is parched and weary from crying out to you. When is the last time we sought God like that? Think about it this way. When you are walking around your life, doing your thing, you just need a little advice, you might ask someone to come over. So, hey, can you help me out with my computer? Hey, can you help me with my, I'm, I'm, I'm putting up a wall here, hold a board. You, you might, you know, ask calmly, casually. But if a plank was fallen upon you, you can't get up, and you stay there without help, you will die. How do you cry out then? You're like, hey, I'm here! Right, there's different ways of asking for help. One is calmly, but one is understanding the dire situation you find yourself in. And when it says cry out, it has, you understand the dire situation. God, there is no wisdom but yours. There is no understanding but yours. That wisdom that comes from heaven above. James 3.17 says this. James 3.17, but the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. Like, this is the wisdom of heaven. What a beautiful thing that is. What a beautiful thing that is. So do we call out for that? Do we seek it? It says in Colossians 2, 3, Colossians 2, 3, in him, Christ, in him lie all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In him lie all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So seeking the wisdom of God is kind of synonymous with seeking God himself. Right? We're not looking for wise sayings. We're not looking for things from Buddha and Confucius and random wise people of the Middle East. We're looking for the God, an author of wisdom himself. God, speak to me. 
Show me your way. Without this active pursuit, this active searching, what are we doing? Actively seeking him. It says this in Proverbs eight seventeen. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Again, Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen. We're familiar very many of us with twenty nine eleven, but twenty nine thirteen I think is even better, where it says, "You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart." You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So, well, well, I do seek God. Okay. I'm glad. How many hours a day do you spend seeking him in prayer, seeking him in his word, seeking him through the counsel of others? How many days of the week, how many weeks of the year, how many years have you spent on your knees? Many of us can't talk like that. In a world of fast food Christianity, the church isn't about gathering with God's people to glorify him. The church is about hearing a sermon that makes me feel good or that is entertaining. It's not about lifting up our voices with God's people to praise him. It's about that worship team is so cool. That's McChurch. We're not in McChurch. We're in God's church. And the idea of being a part of the body of Christ is we seek the reality of Christ, not for five-second microbursts, but for a lifetime that is committed to seeking him on our knees. God, come and meet with me. I long to know you. I long to have this relationship with you. Because it's only through that that we find ourselves changed. It's only through that. It says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that it is by the Spirit of God that we are changed from one degree of glory to the next as we are transformed to the image of Christ. In Romans 12, 2, it says, Do not copy the behavior or customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. You want to have a life that is righteous, a life that is marked by the blessing and the the thumbs up, more or less, from God above. And you have to seek his wisdom. Where do you find that? You find that in him. You find that in his word. You find that when you spend time with his people. You find that when you pursue a life of God. Let's keep going on in the text. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 5 now. It says, then you will understand what it means to fear the Lord. And you will gain knowledge from God. I love that. And then you will gain knowledge from God. Verse 6, for the Lord grants wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He grants a treasure of common sense and to the honest. He is a shield to those who walk with integrity. He guards the paths of the just. And he protects those who are faithful to him. Like, think about that for a minute. He grants the knowledge. It's this, this treasured knowledge that he's stored up. He's like waiting to pour it out. He's like, if you're seeking after me, you're seeking my wisdom, you're seeking, you're diligently searching. <coughs> it's, just, 
It's described as a silver, as a treasure. What that's saying is that not only is wisdom a worthy pursuit, but it is worth the discipline and diligence that is required to find it. It's worth the effort. Because at the end of the effort, as we continue after him, God will, you will gain the knowledge of God. God will grant the wisdom. From his mouth comes the knowledge and understanding. What an amazing thing that is. If you seek God in his wisdom, you will learn to fear the Lord and you will gain his wisdom. Now, the fear of the Lord, a commonly misunderstood thing by many people because we often say it's about having a reverence for God, which is not wrong. That's right. But then we tend to leave it at that. And we tend to not go further because that goes further. The word here, fearing the Lord, the word literally involves terror. Now, so why would we be terrified? How did God create the universe? Go ahead and lift up your voice. This is the part where you participate. How did God create the universe? Say it. He spoke it. When's the last time your words affected anything except maybe your spouse's emotions? When's the last time you said, and it was so, in the sense of, you know, I'm really thirsty. I could use a nice cold bottle of root beer. Root beer. (laughs) I try sometimes. It doesn't work. But we can't do it. It's not, we don't have the ability, we don't have the capacity, but the star-breathing, universe-shaping author of life itself, his words are enough. The God of this universe spoke, and it was. That God should be terrifying when we realize, thank you, when we realize how good and perfect he is. When this is the God that tells us, hey, live a life of righteousness. When our life is not marked by righteousness, but by sin. There should be a fear of that because we as sinners standing before a perfect, all-powerful judge, there should be a fear and a terror there. Now, does that fear and terror always live like, oh, I walk around constantly afraid. He's just going to smite me and, you know, squish me into the ground. It shouldn't. Why? Well, First John 4, perfect love casts out all fear. It starts with a fear of the power and the authority of who this God is. But then as the love of God is washing over us, we no longer fear that he's just going to smite you off the earth. Why? Because his love encompasses and surrounds you. But it doesn't replace the reality of who he is. So there's still this healthy fear and reverence of who God is. Now, why is it important? Why is it important to have that? Because without that, we're stupid. Whoa, whoa, hang on. I'm not stupid. Mm. How many times have you gone off and said or done something and thought, that was so stupid? Anyone? Thank you. Without the will of God, that's every moment, or without the fear of God, that would be every moment of your life. You might not be wise enough to know it was stupid, but without the fear of God, every moment would be so. Because any moment lived apart from the grace and the mercy and the love of God is beyond foolishness. And the fear of the Lord is what brings us to that place of knowing our need for him. So when you seek his wisdom and you're seeking after him, you develop this fear of the Lord and you gain the wisdom of God. And what an amazing 
thing that is. God grants the wisdom. He grants a treasure of common sense. On the NLT, it says common sense. That word is hard to translate. It basically is this idea that it is, it is effectual counsel. It is sound wisdom. This is advice that you should take it and do it because you do it and good things happen. That's what the idea of what this is. So when it's saying common sense, yes, but it's, it's like this is counsel from God that you do this, good things take place. Does that necessarily mean everything you wish and hope for comes true? That's not what it's promising. It's promising God's will is accomplished through it. And the life that's seeking wisdom, the life that is seeking God, that should be enough for us. If it accomplishes God's wisdom, if it accomplishes his glory, his goal, his will for my life, my life that's all I want. A righteous life is not about your pursuits. It's about living your life rightly in the eyes of God. Now, some of us, that's a terrifying thing. To live my life in such a way that it's, it's just for God. It's just for God. I mean, what if God sends me off into the middle of the jungle and I'm single for all of my life? And, uh, and some people, that's a terrifying idea. But let me ask you, let's say that is God's will for your life. Do you really think any other path would be satisfying for your soul than the one God called you to? Do you really think your idea for your path, your plans for your life would be better for you and better for God's kingdom? Do you really think it would be better for the satisfaction of your soul to live your life your way than the way that the author of all things, creation, life, salvation itself, this God, better than his plan? Do you really, do you really think that's going to pan out better for you? Now, if we're honest, we'll say, oh, no, 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 of course not. But if we're honest, we'll say, but sometimes I live that way. The life of someone who is righteous is marked by following God's path, God's will, God's desire. Why? Because it's conforming our lives to him. And how do we know how to do that? We learn to fear the Lord and learn to gain his counsel and his wisdom. That's his word, that's his people, that's him himself. You learn to sift through the counsel around you and discern, is this of God or is this just some foolish thing of men? He guards the path, verse 8, of the just, and he protects those who are faithful to him. That word faithful is not one that's hard to translate. Uh, it's the word hesed. Uh, you may have heard of people talking before about God's hesed love. It's this idea of it's faithful, it's steadfast, it's loyal, it's enduring, and it's this love. Those, it's basically a word that says, my love for you, God, it's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. And it's usually used to describe God's love for us. It's usually used to describe God's loving us and how his love is not going anywhere. And he's like, but hey, the ones whose love is mine, when our love, our faithfulness belongs to God, it's like, hey, I'm there, and I'm with you. There could be no greater promise. There could be no greater truth for us than the reality that God is with you. What an amazing thing. Let's jump down to verse 9. Verse 9 says this, Then you will understand what is right, just, and fair. And you will find the right way to go. All of us, again, this is one continuous thought, one continuous sentence. 
Seek his wisdom like it's something worth seeking. Seek it like it's something that's actually valuable. And don't stop. Because if this, then you know the wisdom of God. Then you know the fear of the Lord. And if you have this, then. It's basically a bunch of if-thens. If you seek it, it's there. If you have it, then this comes. Verse 9, then you will understand what is right. This whole thing of I desire righteousness. I want to know what it is to live rightly in God's eyes. This is how. This is how you surrender your life to the pursuit of God's wisdom and God's understanding that our lives be shaped by the fear of the Lord. That is how. It's not I'm going to try so hard and become a better Christian. Won't work. I promise. Why? Because spiritual growth is God's work with our participation. It's God's work, but with our participation, right? So this whole chapter we've gone through, it's saying, seek it and seek it, right? That's our participation. That's our part. We run after him. We seek him. What's God's part? Everything else. Everything else. God grants the wisdom. God pours out the counsel. God, God, God. It's, everything else is God. The understanding and the righteous, all of that is God. It's God's work with our participation. You seek God and his wisdom. Then you'll be satisfied with righteousness. You'll know what this righteousness is. If you jump back with me to Matthew 5. We're going to finish off, um, finish off with Matthew 5. Because it says, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, righteousness. For they'll be satisfied. That word there for satisfied... It's an interesting word. It's usually meant to, um, it's usually used when you're feeding animals. It's the idea of fattening, like fattening a cow. So it's like, do this and you'll be fattened. Well, okay, maybe not physically, but there is a satisfaction. Like think Thanksgiving when you've eaten to the point where, man, you need to loosen your belt a few notches. You're like, oh, that was good. That's the idea. Those who hunger and thirst to have their lives conform to the will and desires of God. Those who long for that, recognize this, this is something essential for my life. God will satisfy you. But satisfy you completely and thoroughly. You'll just be like, that's saying that life is perfect. No, life's not going to be perfect this side of eternity. But it is saying you'll have this understanding of righteousness and your life, when you live with this hunger and thirst for righteousness, your life will be marked by righteousness. And there will be a satisfaction in the soul of God. My life is pleasing to you. I know I make mistakes. I know I sin. But I know the blood of Christ covers over me. And I know that the grace of Christ showers me with your goodness. And I know that my life is marked by your righteousness. It's not of my own. It's your righteousness. Because when I live my life in a way that pleases God, that is righteous. That is right in the eyes of God. It's not something we are capable of doing on our own, but it is something that he enables us to do. And what an amazing, amazing thing. Because all this comes from God. Remember this. All comes from God. It says in James 1.5, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God, 
and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. It comes from him. Ask for him. Now, there's something that I want to touch on here as we are wrapping up our time together. Sometimes as we're talking about righteousness, as we're talking about living a life that's pleasing to God, I understand there may be some of us sitting in this room that think back on your life and think, man, I could never be a, have a life that is righteous. I know what I've done. I know where I've been. And pastor, it's all good, good, for, good and all for you. But you don't know where I've been. It's like, well, you don't know where I've been either. And I don't need to know where you've been. All I need to know is what Christ has done on the cross. It's like, but, but pastor, you don't understand. I, I, I've let God down. No, you haven't let God down. You know why you've never let God down? Because he didn't trust you to begin with. He knew what you're capable of, and he knew that you were not capable of earning your salvation or earning his favor. That's the whole point of the cross. That's the whole point of Christ living the life you never could. Because as he lived the life you couldn't, he was able to go to the cross and shed his blood for you. His life poured out for you. And in doing so, that sin, that failure, that shame that you hold on to, that God says, hey, let it go. At the cross, it was paid for. At the cross, it was done. And what an amazing thing that is. At the cross, it was done. He declared, it is finished. The only thing that stops you from living a life of righteousness in God is when you don't have God. If you have him, if you surrender your life to him, then you have everything you need because he's the one who brings righteousness. He's the one who brings the wisdom and the counsel and shows you how to walk in his ways. If you have him, you have everything you need. Do you understand that? You don't have to have lived the perfect life. We see in scripture the picture of Paul so often pastors use this illustration, but it's so worthy of being used. That's why it's used all the time. Paul was a mass murderer against the church. We have no idea the countless lives that were damaged and ravaged by his hatred for Christ. Until one day when he meets Christ and his life changes, and he becomes an apostle for the church, and he plants churches, and he writes like a half the New Testament, and we've, God uses him in powerful ways. Why? Not because Paul was anything special. Because he was someone who had surrendered his life to God, and God's like, I'm going to use that. And Paul didn't even hide from his past. He's like, I'm the greatest of sinners. Why? Because when people see where you've been. That's the only way they can see the journey God took to bring you to where you are. You have a past, so does everyone. The past doesn't stop you from following Christ. Christ has already erased that barrier at the cross. The question comes down to, do we, by faith, embrace that, surrender to that? The only, we've talked about in the beginning of all this, our spiritual bankruptcy. There is no possible way 
for us to earn it. You receive it by faith. So if that's something you've never done, if that's something that, a place you've never been with God, is like, God, I've heard about you, but I don't know if I've ever really surrendered my life to you. Before you leave this place, talk with somebody. Whether it's myself, another pastor, we have, we have a prayer team that will be up here later towards the end of the service. Talk with somebody. But maybe you're like, no, I do know God, but I just, I, like, it's fine. Paul's this great story, right? But I'm a Christian and I still keep sinning. Welcome to the club. God's grace still continues and still continues and still continues. And the point of the Christian life is not that you're perfect, but that you are being perfected by the God who's already accomplished all that is necessary for your salvation and for your perfection. And one day we will be perfect for eternity. That's not this day. I long for that day, but that's not this day. So what do we do this day? This day by the grace and the will of God. We throw ourselves at his feet. And we cry out for his wisdom. And we cry out for him. That he would guide us. He would shape us. God, teach me. Unite my heart, as the psalmist writes. Unite my heart to fear your name so that we would walk in his ways. We would walk in truth, in justice, in righteousness. That we would walk in a way that honors him and declares the goodness of God to any who see it. Please pray with me. Jesus, there is absolutely nothing that we can do to earn our way to you, to try and make ourselves look pretty in your eyes. All we can do is surrender ourselves to you. You've already done the work in our life, or for our lives. You've already done the work for our lives. So God, let us surrender to you. Crying out to you, seeking the wisdom that you give, seeking the wisdom that we would learn what is right and just and fair in your eyes. It comes from you. So we put ourselves in your hands. Inspire in us a hunger and a thirst for your righteousness, for your truth. We thank you, God. We praise you. In Jesus' name we say, amen.